0: we know that pop culture and social media has an impact on all of us and all of our beliefs. So I think, you know, it's, it's an important topic.
1: I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps. We sell e-books and audiobooks. We build a lot of technology that helps people spend more time reading But in our hearts, we are booksellers and readers. So when we have a chance to bring authors to the Kobo offices, I get a chance to bring them to our studio here in Liberty Village, Toronto, to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Timothy Caulfield. As an academic, he is a heavyweight. The Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta, he has published more than 350 scholarly articles on everything from stem cells and genetics to research ethics and science policy. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, but he also breaks out of the world of research to write popular books about health and science. Both of his first books, The Cure for Everything, untangling the twisted messages about health, fitness, and happiness, and The Vaccination Picture, discussed the damaging and distorted world of health claims and anti-vaxxers. He then hosted and co-produced a documentary TV show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death, which has been shown in over 60 countries. His 2015 book has just been reissued, and the timing couldn't be better. As we do on Kobo in Conversation, we'll be asking Timothy about his own history as a reader and writer, but we will start with talking about his book, The Science of Celebrity. Is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything? Timothy Caulfield, welcome to Kobo. Thanks for having me on. The very last chapter of this book is called The Dream Crusher, and that could almost be an alternate title for this entire book. (laughs) Diets, detoxes, gluten, how you become famous, whether it's even worth being famous. You systematically dissect it all. And like many dissected things, it's not pretty. What made you decide to take a deep dive into all of the fallacies and deceptions that surround celebrity?
0: That's hilarious. You say that. You know, I thought about calling the book Nothing Works. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too dark. It was a little bit too dark. You know, one of the reasons I, I, I got into this is because it really was a tie back to my academic work. You know, as an academic, I, I really try to, to aggregate what the science says on, on a particular topic, you know, in the context of health, whether you're talking about, about diets or whether you're, you're talking about, you know, a public health initiative. And you really get the sense that the, the science is so often twisted, and a lot of that twist comes from pop culture. So that, that really kind of brought me into the, the cult, pop culture space. But I also admit I just love pop culture. I always have loved pop culture. So it was kind of fun to live in that world while I was working on the book. And as you know, in the book, I really do try to live in that world. But the other, the other thing I find fascinating, this is sort of the latter half of the book that really touches on the Dream Crusher title, is to look at the way in which celebrity has become our goal and the way it shapes the decisions that we make, and how much of that is really an illusion. So the first half of the book is more about the kind of stuff I think maybe um people may be more familiar with me if they are familiar <laughs> with me at all, and that's a very small cohort. Is about you know debunking these crazy kind of therapies and diets and stuff and, and beauty regimes. But the latter half is really more about that impact it has on our ambitions and our life decisions.
1: Gwyneth Paltrow shows up in the subtitle, and is almost a character in the book, at least she's a looming, shining, well-hydrated, detoxified presence. Why is she central for you in all of this?
0: It's interesting because some people think, oh, the book's about her, but as you know, it's not. It's not about her because she is such a great example of the impact of pop culture and the way pop culture handles science and health information. She's a great anecdote. <laughs> which is interesting, I'm gonna, come back. I'm gonna come back to that. And what's fascinating is is when I first started writing this, and you, you, know, you know well how long it takes to write a book and, that, and how that process plays out. So you, know, you gotta go back to 2012, 2013, where I always started thinking about this, and her company, Goop, just started then, right? It wasn't like it was this massive presence that we have now, it just started then. So I thought it was almost a quirky example of the role of pop culture. And she was saying all these ridiculous things, but holy cow, <laughs> you know, since, since the book came out in 2015, she has accelerated, you know, I haven't been able to keep up with her. She's gotten, you know, saying more outrageous things and her presence in our lives has become bigger. And so I, you know, that was a little bit of luck. I have to admit, I didn't anticipate that her presence would grow to the degree it has, but the fact, you know, her Gwyneth Paltrow as an example of pop culture in this space has become only better since since the
1: book came out. And just to be clear, I mean you don't come into this as you're not trying to do a takedown. You're not trying to pull down a celebrity. You're more going after the specifics. You know, do the things that she recommends that other celebrities recommend actually have any basis in science.
0: That's right. And you know I, I really try not to do takedowns.
1: Sometimes it's hard,
0: you know, it's hard. And and to be honest with you, since the book came out, I think people, you know, would probably would say, oh, for sure you're trying to take her down because she has said things that are even more aggravating, right, more harmful. And when a celebrity does that, I think it's entirely fair. Like if a celebrity gives advice about, you know, get a colonic, don't get vaccines, if they give sort of harmful advice, I think it's entirely appropriate to have a science based response to that. But you're right. I don't try to shame people into not liking pop culture. I love pop culture. You know, I follow it all the time. And so I don't that's not the point. Right. The point is really to get into the specifics, but also to, to get a sense of why people are attracted to this. Why are we all every one of us attracted to this and why does it have uh, so much influence? Because that's the other thing you hear. I'm sure you hear this, too. Oh, you know, my kooky neighbor may, you know, listen to Kim Kardashian, but not me. You know, this does isn't relevant to me. Well, we know that's not true. We know that pop culture and social media has an impact on all of us and all of our beliefs. So I think you know it's it's an important topic.
1: Well, and some things seem to just jump out of popular culture and into the public consciousness. A great example that starts off the book, it seems like every January, everyone I know. Is doing a cleanse, you know, this idea that by changing what you eat or how you eat, you can rid the body of toxins. But as you describe it, the science says that it doesn't work. You're right, and and that
0: I I do think that's a great example. I believe that the idea of detoxification and cleansing wouldn't exist but for the celebrity embrace of that idea, right? And for sure, Gwyneth Paltrow has been a big part of that celebrity embrace. And it's completely science-free. I actually love this topic because you don't have to pull your punches. (laughs) You know, you don't have to (laughs) equivocate at all on what the science says. You know, on one hand, this and no, it doesn't work. It's scientifically absurd. It's not scientifically plausible. But think of the degree to which that idea has taken root. I think there's almost now this intuitive belief in the idea of cleanses and detoxification uh, and that this is inherently good, and that we should all be doing it. And something I talk about in the book is it's almost like if you're not doing it, you're doing something wrong. And if you are doing it, it's a virtuous practice, right, that should be encouraged. You're not on a a vain diet, trying to get sexy abs, you're on a cleanse, you know, good for you, you know, do your best.
1: And yet, as you go into the details and start to go down a couple of layers, you realize it's not even really clear what these toxins are, or where they're stored, or what metabolic process is actually being used to get them out of your body?
0: yeah, you know ask ask someone who who recommends a cleanse, what am I detoxifying? How does this process work? How can you measure that it's really detoxifying at all? How come it, you know, your kidneys and your liver, those, you know, do the detox, uh, the detoxification. And let's not forget, I tried this (laughs) because, you know, I I like to, I like to get involved and, and try to experience all of these things. And so I, I went on Gwyneth's cleanse. It's called the clean cleanse. I met with her doctor in Hollywood. I can't believe he agreed to meet with me, but he did. And he you know, told me to go on this on this cleanse. And he told me, you know, first of all, I needed to detoxify my body. Secondly, that I needed to try to reverse adrenal fatigue, which is a celebrity made up ailment, no science behind it at all, and that I would have all these benefits. So I try it. And, and it is extremely difficult. There was no coffee for three weeks, if you can believe that. I can barely go like a half a day without a coffee. Imagine doing it for three weeks. And I think that that, you know, that's another thing that's appealing about these cleanses, not that <laughs> not the no coffee. It's like climbing a mountain, right? It's like running a marathon. If you complete it, it feels like you've accomplished something. And I think that's another selling feature, believe it or not, you know, that you've done this, you feel good about yourself, and you're taking action, even if that action has no science behind it. And in fact, may be harmful.
1: And the idea that okay, maybe if the cleansing itself isn't working, if the toxins aren't actually being removed, maybe this still has some other health benefits, like maybe it's helping me lose weight. But as your own experience pointed out, it doesn't even really help you lose weight either. That's right. You lose weight because
0: <laughs> look, it's a, re- a super restricted diet. The one I went on, it was like a shake in the morning, uh, and then you have this really restricted list of things that you can eat and then shake at night. That was it for three weeks. So uh, are you going to lose weight? Yeah, you're on an extreme diet. You know, it's an extreme, it's a crash diet. That's what you're doing. You're doing a crash diet for three weeks. And you know what was fascinating? I talk a little bit about this in the book. So here I am, someone who's been, I, I used to do a lot of obesity policy. And so well aware of the research around weight loss and you know, how, how we need to be careful, how we think of our weight and, you know, weight stigma and all, I know all of that. And I'm still thrilled that when I step on the scale, as I'm doing this, the weight's coming off, right. I'm still, cause it, we're so bombarded with the message that weight loss is a noble thing to do. And if you lose weight, it's good. Right? So I'm still thrilled. But more interestingly, I knew it was going to come back on. Right. I absolutely knew it. And and as soon as I came off the cleanse, the weight came right back and I lost a lot of weight. Like I, you know, I'm not, you know, I like to think I'm, you know, (laughs) a healthy weight, but I lost like, you know, 11, 12 pounds. It came back immediately. And the funny thing was, I was depressed about it, (laughs) even though I knew it was coming back on. And even though I I should be realistic about it, it still gets you down. And that isn't that a great example of how this all works and and the impact of pop culture messaging around this kind of thing, around weight, around body image, around what we should be
1: doing. And you did have that one glorious moment where the weight was off and you could feel like, yes, this is actually working all of this. Pain and suffering that I've put myself through has obviously paid off. Right, and I I even took a picture,
0: <laughs> so like because it was this brief moment where I had abs.
1: <laughs> you should.
0: You earned a picture. What a crazy thing to do. You know, I've got the abs, and no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna post it. But yeah, it lasted. I had abs for an afternoon. I'll <laughs> put So,
1: and then I went back to middle aged Tim. Going back to a point you were talking about earlier, I once had a. Naturopath described me a range of supplements because they determined that I had adrenal fatigue and I also had to give up coffee, which was hazardous to me and everyone around me and gave me real fatigue. But it sounds like my adrenal glands are just fine.
0: They are just fine. You know, adrenal fatigue really is, you know, I'm not sure if I like this term because it's probably too pejorative, but you know, they call it an internet disease. It is. A disease or an ailment that has sort of intuitive appeal. You're feeling tired, you know. You're feeling run down. This is what you need to do. And and I want to be careful because people may have those symptoms, right? And they may be searching for an answer. And I think it's important to listen to people, you know. And in in the vaccination picture, the the last word in the whole book is is listen, because I think it's really important to also understand why are people attracted to this stuff. You know, in my in my career, I've tried just about every kind of alternative practitioner you can think of, because I want to get that experience. And almost without exception, it's been a positive experience, right? You know, they're listening to you, they give you some actionable thing to do. So I I get it, even though there's absolutely no evidence to support almost anything that they provide.
1: And so your research shows it doesn't support, shows that it doesn't work. Doctors say that Treatments like this don't work, and the media has in many cases said it too. So, why do we still believe? I think there's a, a bunch
0: going on. First of all, I, I think depending on the, the modality, you know, the media is not always great. You know, sometimes they do detoxing, is a good example. You know, I, I think over the last couple of years, the media has got better with that, but we've certainly seen that concepts like detoxing and cleansing was legitimized in the popular press. So, I think that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, they often have this intuitive appeal, sort of makes intuitive sense. Who wants toxins residing in their bodies? You know, that, yeah, I want to detoxify too. So I think there's that aspect, uh, that aspect to it. Uh, I also think that just we're exposed to it so much. There's the illusory truth phenomenon we're exposed to it so much. And, and that this is thanks to celebrities largely, but also uh, just people blogging about it, you know, sharing on social media that if you see something enough, it seems real. Right. And, and I think that's also what, what's happening. And also there's just effective marketing going on, right. You know, we see, you see that a lot. There's a health halo now almost surrounding something like detoxing. If you see that word in a, in a product, you believe it, it works. And, and we've seen that in other areas like gluten free is another example, which I talk about in, in the book. And I talk about it in my forthcoming book, too. Even though there's no science to support it, that phrase is now has a, a health halo effect. If it's on a product, it seems like it's going to be effective. So I think there are a lot of cultural forces that are, are driving that. And also what I've just talked about, when people try it, you know, this is really interesting, too. People try it, right? You go on this cleanse, and it seems like it works, right? So you, you attribute the benefits of losing weight, and you're taking action so you feel good about yourself to the cleanse. But when the weight comes back on, that's your fault. (laughs) You know, you you screwed up. So you go back to getting another crash diet or another cleanse, and the circle repeats itself.
1: And so you came up with your own diet, which should be featured on the front pages of Us Weekly or People Magazine. Can you describe for us the life-changing Caulfield cleanse?
0: (laughs) You know, first of all, you've got to cleanse yourself of all the misinformation out there, right? And uh, I think that you know, it's it's maybe a little bit overstating, you know, in simplicity, but it's true. You know, I think we really need to uh, try to cleanse ourselves uh, of of the misinformation. And, and since I wrote the book, and and this is one of the, uh, I think the benefits of the growing recognition of the harm of misinformation. There's been more research showing that. You know, we really can do this. We can treat, uh, teach critical thinking skills and we can a- apply them. And the other thing that we can do is that we cannot share misinformation. So cleanse cleanse yourself with the misinformation for yourself, but also for others. And the o- other thing we can do is just embrace those evidence-based, simple things that we can do to live a healthy lifestyle. And of course, this is one of the reasons I think pop culture is so, all that pop culture noise is so harmful and there's, and there's research to back this up is because it distracts us, right? It distracts us from doing those simple things that we can all do to live a healthy lifestyle. And it's you don't smoke, (laughs) you exercise, you eat a healthy diet. And that sounds like a cheat. it sounds like an oversimplification, but it's not, you know, there's really no magic around a healthy diet. If you look at all the longitudinal studies, they all say the same thing. It's lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, you know, healthy proteins, There really is no magic and there's a lot of flexibility uh, under that definition. Try to maintain a healthy weight. You know, that is probably one of the toughest ones. And we recognize that we all come in different shapes and sizes and can be healthy in all those different shapes and sizes. I think it's really important to recognize that. And you surround yourself with people you love and you get a good night's sleep, you know, and that's, that's really about it. You know, that is the, you know, cleanse yourself of the misinformation and adopt those science informed steps. And that really is it.
1: And the only problem with your diet really seems to be that it's very difficult for you to charge people for doing these things. That uh, <laughs> that these really are all basic rules of thumbs that we can all follow ourselves without having to buy a book, without having to buy a supplement, without having to enroll in a multi-thousand dollar cleanse regime. It's hard to sell
0: exercise you know i've even changed a little bit on this topic you know I my my first book book for the general public the the cure for everything i really pushed this idea of interval training and lifting weights and i still believe that i think if, from an efficiency perspective those are probably the best things you can do but increasingly i think just move if you like walking that's awesome if you like flipping tires in your backyard that's awesome just move. And I think the research says that over and over again, you're right, it's hard to sell and package these things. And that's why I think you'll see even sensible advice, like you'll get these lifestyle, these uh, wellness gurus, you know, providing what's basically what I just described in some kind of fancy package, right? So it's, it's exercise and eat real food, wrapped in a blanket of pseudoscience, right? They just can't tell you to do that. They've got to figure out some kind of spin on it. So, you're 100% correct. It's very difficult to to sell that, and it's difficult also if you're Dr. Oz to have, you know, many seasons of TV shows telling people to do those things.
1: As you mentioned, some of this comes back to ground you covered in your first book, The Cure for Everything. What made you decide to revisit the topic a few years later?
0: I think for sure that the Gwyneth book, as I'll call it, uh, the celebrity book, really is about, you know, the twisting uh, of of health and science uh, in in our world and also the power of pop culture. And and part of that is, again, informed a little bit by the research I was doing, you know, in my academic life where you really got a sense of of the power. And and one of the best examples, of course, is the anti-vax debate that we've seen. You really get a sense of how even a handful of voices can impact how we perceive something that's vitally important to our health and not just our health, but our community's health and, you know, the, world health, the world's health. So I think that's what really nudged me in that direction. And also, uh, the, you know, the, sort of that latter half of the book, the impact that pop culture has on all, all of our decisions, you know, from parenting to what we want to be when we grow up. Pop culture really is playing an unprecedented role right now.
1: As we get into the book, you switch gears into the industry of beauty, specifically anything that is supposed to firm or tone or diminish cellulite or sculpt or cause my skin to glow. I've always wanted my skin to glow, and some have never been able to make that happen. There's a phrase that you use, which is, beauty advice is a science-free zone. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? It is a science-free zone. <laughs> That's the, uh, it, it is
0: incredible when you think of this multi-billion dollar industry that is largely devoid of science. I want to be really careful here because you know, there are you know, chemists, et cetera, that work in the beauty industry.
1: There's lots of science involved yeah. in making it. <laughs> and, and there is stuff that works.
0: But the stuff that works generally is prescription strength. You know, you've got to go to a, a doctor to get it. But when you're talking about, you know, anti-aging, let's keep it real simple. You know, let's, I don't want my skin to age or I want to get rid of the wrinkles I have. You know, there really isn't much that you can do beyond stay out of the sun, don't smoke, get a good night's sleep, you know, exercise. You know, the, those are the things that are, and by the way, have really good genes. That's probably the number one thing. Pick, pick your parents. Make sure you've got good parents. Uh, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing. Everything else is just almost total nonsense, right? Even even moisturizing, right? People think about, oh, yeah, moist, my skin looks better. Well, that's temporary, right? You know, the, you look at the longitudinal studies, it's very unclear if that has an impact. There is stuff around retinol, absolutely. Um, mostly it, ha- it should be prescription strength, because over-the-counter stuff, there's this huge variance in what is in the products. It's almost totally a science-free zone.
1: And you ran your own skincare test on yourself.
0: I did. I did. So I went to a dermatologist and the dermatologist advised that I go see this beauty specialist. And so this person, you know, people are probably quite familiar with these places where, you know, they do an assessment of, on your, of your skin, have this machine that they, they kind of measure what kind of products you need, um, how old your skin is, you know, how damaged it is. And then they recommend that you use all these products. And, you know, I got all these really expensive products and I can't remember what, how much it was, it was, hundreds of dollars. Worth it, you know the high high end stuff, and I use it pretty religiously for eight months. I think it was. I should remember this. You know, uh, I used it pretty religiously, right? So the whole idea was I was going to be a before and after. But then I did a little twist on it. I went to another dermatologist for the after, and so this dermatologist didn't know that I had done any of this stuff, and his assessment was worse. Like I'd gotten worse, if you believe the second dermatologist. Now. That, I, I probably didn't get worse. The, the, I think the most important takeaway here is despite these <laughs> efforts, it didn't have a measurable or obvious impact. That's the best, the most, you know, kind of friendly uh, interpretation you can give to my, my experience, you know, didn't have a dramatic impact. You know, I, I generally just use. I, look, I'm a pretty vain guy too, so <laughs> it's not like I don't care what I look like. I, but I'm a soap and water.
1: So you wanted this to work. It wasn't that you didn't want it to work.
0: Yeah, yeah, bring it on, <laughs> bring it, bring it on. I wanted it to work. You know what's really interesting? There's research, and I talk about it in the book. I believe it's from Toronto where they, they did research and talking to women. And of course, you know, I've talked to, a, as you know, a lot of scholars in the book about the huge pressure on, on, on women in this context. But this study found that, that women often know this stuff doesn't work and they use it anyway, right? Because a couple of things going on there, probably some, they might just find a ritual comforting. But the more sort of cynical view is that they're under so much pressure that they feel they've got to do something right? They've got, they've got to try it regardless, even if it probably doesn't work. And there's also this belief that the more expensive something is, the more likely it's going to work, even though there's no evidence to support that either.
1: Even what seemed like a fairly common sense prescription around hydration turns out not to have much science behind it. My 17-year-old stepdaughter, who is smart and generally skeptical and aware, is also absolutely convinced that drinking massive amounts of water is critical to health and well-being. There are water bottles positioned at strategic locations through our house and cars and backpacks, and it's the same for all of her friends and for my you know, grown-up friends. But it turns out that we don't need that to the same degree that beauty experts are telling us either.
0: We do not, eight glasses of water a day, that myth. Everyone's heard it, right?
1: Absolutely, Uh, timers on phones to make sure that you're drinking your eight glasses of water a day.
0: You can get smart bottles, right? That will ping when you're supposed to drink. No evidence is supported at all. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? It's you drink when you're thirsty, you know, thank you evolution, right? You know, you drink when you're thirsty, no evidence, it's not going to make your skin glow, you know, and it is one of those myths that will not die, you know, and I, I give public lectures, I often, you know, use that as an example, and people are astounded, you know, and there's often people in the audience with their water bottles, you know, their stainless steel water bottles. <laughs> uh, funny that you should bring that up, because just yesterday, my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter was sort of mocking me for not, for not drinking. So here's my daughter, she's heard me rant on this all the time and she still buys into it. And the interesting thing is, I think that the fact that people continue to believe this, even though there's no evidence to support it, and and often doctors say there's no evidence to support it, is a good example of the power of pop culture. Because it's just this belief that's been absorbed by pop culture. We keep hearing it over and over again. It has intuitive appeal. You know, water's good for you. More would be better. And so I think that's why it lives on. And and look, you do need to drink enough. You don't want to be, you know, (laughs) completely dehydrated. But you you know, the water in your coffee counts. The water in your apple counts. You know, there's you drink when you're thirsty.
1: The second part of this book moves from health to fame, and specifically the idea that fame has become almost the primary goal of many young people. Historically, is that a new thing for us? It
0: is a new new thing. Of course, celebrities have always been around. And of course, kids always dreamed of being successful and having some exciting career. But as you know, from the book, there has been a a radical, a radical shift. And it's gone from, you know, there's surveys that were done not even that long ago, where where kids said they wanted to be an astronaut, they wanted to be a teacher, they wanted to be a scientist. And about five years ago, you do those surveys. And kids want to be. Uh, pop star, professional athlete, you know, actor, right? That's what they want to be. Uh, or just celebrity. They just say, I want to be a celebrity. Do that survey now. And I talk about this in the updated version of the book. They want to be an influencer. You know, there's some studies that show that's the number one thing that kids want to be now, an influencer, which is just such a, you know, that really is being famous for being famous. You know, that's really what it is. It's, you know, fame kind of stripped of all of the attributes of, Talent and um, ability now I want to be real careful here, because you know really talented people have emerged on on social media platforms, no doubt about it. But when you say that you want to be an influencer, you're really saying you want you know fame as a byproduct of fame. So that is a fascinating shift.
1: When we think about becoming famous, whether we're talking about music or acting or sports or the new venues in social media. You give some fairly daunting math when it comes to whether or not someone can become famous in a particular field and what the statistical likelihood of that is.
0: I'm going to start with my grim conclusion here. Sort of a, 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 you're not going to be famous.
1: (laughs) Back to your role of the the destroyer of dreams.
0: Yeah, this is the destroyer. You're not going to be famous. It's like, I think that it seems, being famous seems closer now. It seems more tangible because I think partly because of social media, I could do that. You know, look at that famous person. They're in their house and they're famous. It feels closer. And, you know, and it's interesting because I even talk to people in the entertainment industry and they kind of believe it too. Now everyone can be famous. No, because the denominator now is, is even bigger, right? It's even bigger, but I I break it down with sports. If you know a hockey player right now, let's let's say there's a 14 year old hockey player, That is a superstar in your community, and everyone's saying that that person's. I mean, a superstar, completely dominating. If I was gonna, I would bet you ten thousand dollars that that person never even sees ten thousand (laughs) dollars. That person doesn't even see NHL ice ever. Now, that's a real bet. So, if they're not on, you know, you (laughs) got to give me the odds on that. It is incredibly difficult, and it's almost always based on luck, 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 genes plus luck. Right? It's really incredibly. Daunting, and, and, and an actor, a dancer, the chances are even are even smaller. And then one of the reasons I think it's really important to, to recognize that I don't mean to be a dream crusher, and I talk about in the book, and I talked to a lot of experts and world renowned acting coaches, and they all say the same thing. The reason why it's so problematic is if people are focused. This is a cliche, but I'm going with it here. <laughs> Bear with me. If people are focused on that goal, they don't enjoy the journey, right? And they don't enjoy the craft. And they don't enjoy why they're doing it. You can be, you know, an amazing actor, an amazing musician, an amazing athlete. And the the important thing is to, you know, that intrinsic value of doing it for those reasons. The fame, if it ever comes, is because of luck. And yes, you know, often talent is a
1: prerequisite,
0: obviously. But, you know, really enjoy, you know, be doing it for the right reasons. And I know that's a horrible cliche, but sometimes cliches are true
1: in my first degree I trained to be a composer and at no point oh my gosh yeah (laughs) poet composer there. (laughs) I know at no point in the beginning of my degree did anyone say you know there is a a one in n thousandth chance of making a successful living as a composer never mind as a you know Canadian composer of contemporary classical music, why doesn't that message get delivered? And shouldn't that be something that people are hearing as they're starting to embark in some of these careers?
0: I I think we don't hear it for a bunch of reasons. One, there's a fame industry out there. You know, I I tried out for, in the book, I I tried out for American Idol. I started with American Idol, right? And I really did try out for American Idol. Uh, and then I also tried out for a modeling agency. And there's a huge industry out there. And think about the industry around hockey. Think about the industry around almost any kind of fame profession, right? So they don't want you to know that. You know, they want you to think if you work hard, the message is if you work hard, you can attain anything. So there's a little bit of also, I think, uh, that North American kind of of feel to it. The, the other thing is, and this is totally speculative. I, I talked about in the last chapter of the book is there is also, I think, a connection between this belief in celebrity as a way to rise up and and social stratification. In the countries that have the least amount of social mobility, you see the most reverence of fame. Now, I think Canada's a little bit of an outlier, so I'll come back to that. But the two, if you look at the OECD, all, all all the wealthy countries, the ones that have the most social disparity and the least amount of social mobility are the United States and the UK the United States I think has the least amount of social mobility which is ironic because people always think about the American dream but you know your your ch- this chance of social mobility in the United States is very, very small as compared to the Scandinavian countries and I think that it is it's like this dream that you can move rise above and and I think that's one of the reasons pop culture likes this idea so much and and if you think of a show like like American Idol or really any of those fame based shows it really is portrayed as a noble pursuit you know you'll see people that have hardship in their life and maybe their one of their parents is dying but they they should be going to this competition anyway because it's something that you've they've always always dreamed about and i i think and again it's the n is you know the the sample size isn't very big so this is speculation but absolutely i think the united states and uk are two countries that have the greatest reverence of the most fascination in fame i'll give you one anecdote uh i was in in iceland and who's the most famous icelandic person you can think of bjork bjork exactly so i was giving a talk in iceland and a beautiful country, and this is, you know, a couple of years ago, it wasn't quite as trendy as it is now. And after my, my lecture, they take me out for dinner to this beautiful restaurant, and who's sitting right next to me but Björk. And she was treated absolutely 100% like a normal citizen <laughs> in Iceland. There was no fame, actually, I was the only one in the restaurant that was kind of freaking out because I'm also a fan. My host actually said, you know, don't look at her, leave her alone. And I tried to position myself so she had to look at me <laughs> so I could say that I had an interaction with Bjork. Didn't happen, by the way. Bjork, I bet, couldn't walk down the street in New York. I bet she couldn't walk down the street in London. Now, that's an anecdote. And maybe if there's someone from Iceland, they disagree with me. But that was certainly, certainly my impression. And, and you know, I've been fortunate to travel in Finland and, and Norway and Sweden. And you certainly don't see that same kind of reverence for celebrity in those in those countries and those are the countries with the highest amount of social mobility. Now I'm really stretching here, it's a lot of speculation, but I think something's there.
1: The U.S. has always had you know, the Horatio Alger myth, you know, the idea of you can work really hard and propel yourself from one social strata to another, but this seems like a different kind of class mobility that you can be launched or catapulted that you could be kind of just plucked up and moved to another another sphere almost like by magic
0: like magic it's and 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 there's another element to it it's almost like it's the opiate of the masses now and it's a horrible i don't want to go you know turn back to, to marx here but but there is there is that idea that you know this is something that people can look to that will give them hope and there are so many movies about this and and there's these you know shows like american idol that really revere this concept it's this magical transformation and what's interesting about it also is think about the destination right it's as if that destination of fame and celebrity is something that we should aspire to that it is a magical place that you're going to and that your life will be transformed and you will be happier and all your problems will go away when of course we know That's not true either, right? You know, there's not a lot of research on it, but the research that exists shows they are no happier, right? They, in fact, some evidence that they're less happy. And so the journey is an illusion and the goal is an illusion, which is really fascinating when you think about the degree to which that entire idea occupies our culture.
1: And so, you know, taking your Bjork example as as kind of one position on a spectrum, is there a healthier or less damaging form of fame? You know, could you be legal scholar famous or not-for-profit famous or non-fiction author famous and not bring on as much of that baggage with you?
0: That's a great question. <laughs> um, I do think that, so there's definitely, we could make that. I'll put it this way, we can make the journey healthier for sure, right? And I think we should, and, and to be honest with you, I think that that is starting to happen a little bit. You know, the way that people think about things like hockey, and the way that people think about you know being a musician. And I think that's partly because the whole industry is is tremendous transformed. But I I think we're starting to see a little bit of, of shift there. You know, in making the journey a little bit a little bit different. And and even being an author, you know, you work in this industry. And when I first started writing, I had other authors tell me, you know, you be. You, you, they warn me and warn me. And this is something I have already been an academic writer for years. They said, you write because you love writing, right? That I'm sure you've heard that too. You know, you don't write to sell books. You write because you love writing. It's like, it's a craft. And I think that that message is starting to uh, permeate our world a little bit more. I'm curious if you uh, agree with that, but the thing at the end, the celebrity, that's a tough one because look, celebrity culture is not going away. Social media is not going away. All those things aren't going away. So I do think we need to, Think of a way that we can transform that, the idea of celebrity and, and make it more of a constructive force. Unfortunately, I don't have a simple answer
1: for you, but uh, <laughs> I think it's it's a worthy pursuit. Let's talk a bit more about reading and writing, and we can start at the beginning. What were books that were formative for you when you were first getting your sense of yourself as a reader?
0: So... You're going to be monstrously disappointed because I'm going to have I'm going to give you all of these kind of real classic kind of examples. So I'm
1: I, <laughs> I'm really hard to disappoint on these uh, on these questions. These are good ones.
0: Okay, so I'm I'm a I'm a science geek. I always have been a science geek, and so no surprise, you know the books that I I love I love. They're still my happy place. Are are those classic science fiction books? Mm-hmm. You know Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. I mean, I, I love them, and then I love some of the quirky ones like Stanislaw Lem. You know, the Polish sci-fi writer. I always I, I always love those books, and and I still do. And and in fact, I recently reread. I don't know if you ever done this, gone gone back to books you loved when you were a kid. Oh yeah. And Childhood's End, I reread that very recently, actually. And it, it was it's even better than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was Totally taken away again and so you know so that's you know as i said no surprise right i'm a science geek and i and i love those books and i still love science fiction i actually think if i had to pick one book that made me want to be a writer and maybe this is going to be a surprise to you also one book that made me want to be a writer it was barbara Tuckman's the guns of august oh good one a nonfiction. i think i was in grade 10 and it was the first time i thought Um, First of all, how exciting and how beautiful nonfiction can be written, right, and how engaging it can be. And I was also just enthralled with this idea of knowing a topic as well as she obviously did, and being able to dive into it and talk about it and explain it. I I was absolutely fascinated and sort of from that book on, I be this big nonfiction fan and I I read all of her books in a distant mirror. So I I, I think that, and and it was so beautifully written too. And so I think that would be, and then later on, you know, for my more recent stuff, again, this is gonna be no surprise. (laughs) I love Bill Bryson. Is it okay to say that? Of course it is. You know what he writes so beautifully. Um, It's always funny but I love the way I'm always so impressed with, and there's a you know group of writers who are like this with writers that can almost trick you into learning something. Do you know what I mean by that? Like they have some really complex topic that they take you on a journey and all, and you're laughing and you're following it. And throughout that, you know, they kind of trick you into this learning about this, this complex area.
1: You are a lawyer, an academic, which makes you an, author by default in the scholarly sense. But then at some point, you also decided to be a writer of popular nonfiction. Where did that transformation take place? What flipped that switch?
0: I think it was, you know, I I wish I could say there's this moment, I I, kind of creeped into it. You know, I started writing more for the popular press, uh, writing more comments. And I actually found, you know, I thought, you know, this would make a a good book. You know, this would be something that would be fun to write about. And I actually think it might've been, you know, inspired by people like Bill Bryson and AJ Jacobs, you know, AJ Jacobs, he wrote yes. the book, The Year of Living Biblically. Mm-hmm. I think that came out like in 2009 or something like that. And and I actually thought, you know, I, I think there were a lot of books of, uh, like that. And I thought, you know, I, I think what I'm seeing play out in, in science and and health policy, you know, I think this would be fun to write. And um I, I have a colleague named Curtis Gillespie who's a he's a writer also. And he I, I really owe him a lot of credit because he really uh nudged me to do this and said, Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. And my first thought I'd I'll make it an academic book that has a little bit of a pop, pop, um, you know, general public vibe to it. And he goes, Oh, go all in. And and I'm so glad he did. And and the other other really, I think, big shift is, you know, I love writing academic stuff. I, I never want to leave that. But there's not as much of it as the writing process involved, right? I, I mean, I love writing. Uh, I do a lot of things in my life, I feel very fortunate. But if I had to pick one thing, I don't know if, you, if people ever ask you this, you know, if you could just do one, it would definitely be writing. Like, that's what I love the absolute most. And, and you get that more, I, I think, the, just the, the act of writing, thinking about what a sentence looks like, what a paragraph looks like, you know, in, in this realm, much more so than you do in the academic realm.
1: Coming back to the science of celebrity for just a second one of the themes that comes up in this book over and over is how resistant people are to information that contradicts what they want to believe and that seems like something that we're seeing everywhere right now that people select the truth that they want they select the science that they want is that something that's getting worse? Or are we just more aware of it now?
0: Both. I think both. I think that it is getting worse because of things like social media and our ability to create confirmation bubbles surrounding ourselves. The fragmentation of the media has facilitated this, allowing, you know, to get information that aligns with your ideology. So I think it's getting worse in that sense. And we're also becoming more aware of it because I think there's more and more research on point. So we're more aware of it. Uh, and I actually think it is getting worse. Uh, and so we need to think of creative communication strategies to break that down, right, to, to talk to everyone else. And that's another reason, right, that's another reason for taking research and, and, and trying to putting it out in the, into the public through books, right, through, through art, through documentaries. I think we need to think of creative communication strategies that that unify us and allow us to to talk across those barriers.
1: And we, as we are recording this, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And it feels like that larger theme of people not trusting science or wanting to be able to pick their own science isn't just now manifesting in how they vote or which television network they want, but is now putting people in real danger. So does it feel like we're starting to get some of those tools and some of those communication strategies that can help break through some of those filter bubbles?
0: This is a tragic example. You know, we're living through a tragic example of the impact of misinformation, all the things that we've talked about, right? The impact of pop culture spin to spin science and to spin uh, what the facts are are on on a topic. It is a remarkable time. You know, we are we're actually studying exactly how uh, the misinformation in the context of the pandemic is playing out. But you're right; there is there is good news. You know, so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that one of the legacies of this crisis is going to be a greater understanding of the value of good independent science, a greater understanding of of why we need to have trustworthy. Uh, entities like the World Health Organization. I think it's really important to highlight you know, that word worthy. You know, w- we have to make sure that these entities are worthy of our trust. But also the credible impact of tolerating pseudoscience and, and the impact of misinformation, I, I think there's going to be a great understanding of both of those things. But we are learning, I think, about how we can break down those barriers and, and what we can do to sort of stop the spread uh, of misinformation. You know, one of them is just to try to get people to stop and think before they spread misinformation. You know, people want to be accurate and you know trying to encourage and nudge people to do that but you know the other way we can do it and there's good evidence to back this up is good storytelling good narratives good books there's a lot of really interesting research on the power of a good story to convey meaning and to get people to remember those things so i'm not talking about fighting anecdote with anecdote i'm talking about using a good story, a compelling uh, art form even, not just a story, a compelling art form to get across the good science. I'm hopeful that that message is going to be learned uh, and embraced post the pandemic.
1: I can think of no better place to leave it than that. Timothy, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our discussion.
1: I've been speaking with Timothy Caulfield. Timothy's latest book is The Science of Celebrity. Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? It and the other books we've mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the podcast, can be found at Kobo.com conversation. There are so many good authors to be found there. This is the last regular season episode of season two of Kobo and Conversation. We'll be dropping bonus episodes into the feed while we work on season three, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Keep an ear out for more staff picks while Kobo carries on working from home, as well as a surprise guest or two along the way. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.